Welcome to 9 to Thrive, a show about balancing work, creativity, and community. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. In a little while, we will resume our conversation with Ted Rao of Sociocracy for All. But before I get to there, I want to talk about a book that I just read or listened to as an audiobook. Usually on this show, I will do books that have to do with psychology or I mean, self-improvement is a, is a good enough word. Things that will help your business get better. Things that will help your self-leadership, your own, a lot of, they're, they're all tied. They're all domain switching. So things that might help your organization of your family get better. Things that might help your own personal organization get better. Ultimately, things that will enrich your life. So what I read this week was Presence by Amy Cuddy. And I will say right off the bat, it's a seriously mixed bag. Amy Cuddy did two TED Talks. The first one was in 2012, and it was about healing from head trauma. And that story is touching and inspiring and harrowing. She had to quit college. There was just a lot about this injury. She really didn't think she'd be able to go on into a fulfilling life, and she did. It's very cool. So she talks about that in this book, and then she talks about the title of the book presence. Here's the thing, especially now that I've read it, looking back on it, what I thought this book was about, because the first chunk of it is about this, is a presence as in being present, being mindful of the moment, of yourself, the importance of being present when you are interacting with another person. You're not looking at your phone. You're not thinking about insurance. You're pulled into this moment with this person. You're giving them your attention and the power of your cognition. That's what I thought about for presence. However, English is a mushy, mushy language. And there are other ways to think about presence. For example, the other big way to think about it is charisma. The effect of getting into a place and having everybody gravitate toward you. I won't say it's not a Venn diagram. It is possible to have a real commanding leadership presence and also be someone who can focus in and be present with people. A personality skill, a performance skill, but I don't think they're the same. And this book uses them interchangeably all the time. And I'll talk about that a little bit more as we go on. But she starts out with Alan Watts, who brought to the West Eastern ideas of mindfulness. He was a philosopher, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, into the 70s, I guess. He started in the 30s. And his thing was bringing these concepts of mindfulness and inner peace to the West. One of the things, and she quotes him saying, is that the root of our anxiety is in leaving our body and retreating to the mind. And I don't disagree with this, but I think that's a big statement. I think it's fair to say a root of our anxiety. I think we can have loads of roots of anxiety. But one antidote is to pay less attention to what the other person feels and more to how you feel. 
But we have no frame of reference for this, most of us. It's unusual that a kid will grow up. I mean, it's becoming, I hope, more likely. But family cultures, culture at large, does not encourage this. In general, we're trained by families, schools, religion, media to focus on the other person and not on how we feel when we are with this person. Although she also has the quote, a high status person is looking out at the world and a low status person is looking at themselves. And here we are again. This is another internal conflict in the book and part of that same confusion between presence and being present. If you pay attention to how you feel, does that make you a low status person? It's mushy. She goes on and she cites a facial recognition study. It's very, very famous. It's universal that human beings recognize six facial expressions and then you talk about them. It feels very believable that we'd be able to do this for, say, identifying rage on a human face or happiness on a human face. However, it has been thoroughly debunked. It's not replicable. The studies are bad design. And they very much depend on the researchers leading the subjects or restricting the answers. In this book, it's kind of flag number one. Not a red one, but a flag. So then she goes on and talks about lying, saying that when you lie, your body and your affect are asynchronous and emotions leak out. Or do they? Because even if that's true, in reputable, replicable studies, so studies that can be repeated the same way with get the same results, it turns out we're no better than chance at detecting it. It's too easy to be wrong with racial and ethnic bias and with disabilities. If you really want to detect lies, what they find now in ways that are repeatable, ask open questions since complicated stories get hard to keep up. Verify details check and see if comfort and confidence changes radically with the answers to those open questions. And conversation is the way to do this. And we're right back to paying attention to how we feel when we focus on this person rather than to what we imagine they're feeling. And researchers at the University of Wolverhampton hilariously found out that one of the best ways to detect a liar is to start off by asking them, are you honest? And they will often tell you up front whether they are or they're not, and how much. She talks about self in this book and the elements of self, confidence and self-esteem. Self is a state, not a trait. I'm on board with that. And about knowing your core values. How do you narrate your own story to yourself and to others? Who do you think you are? And is that story truthful? I think management benefits very much from the people involved being present, especially if we're going to talk about status, higher status people in an organization being present, because the threat is less when you have power. I believe that deep thought is a different state from being present, and it seems to me that management works better when you make sure to use both often and appropriately, setting aside deep thought time, what you might call distracted time from a person because you're, you have this sort of train of thought going on. So not distracted time, but thinking about how things are working and that that not necessarily, in fact, probably not be with other people. And then when you are present, that's what you're doing. 
So change your state or reschedule meeting with people. Or you can also make people aware that you're not in a real state of focus right now. Anything that makes that transparent. Okay, then the book moves into interviews with famous people, starting with actor Julianne Moore. She's got some interesting things that people don't feel present when they don't feel seen, and that leads them to feel powerless. She suggests that being present elicits engagement, both in ourselves and others. Improv is built on this, so that makes total sense, and that your availability and openness gives other people permission to be the same so it makes a virtuous cycle. Being present, she says, is a power. I mean, I think like superpower. Of course, presence is too, if we're talking that charisma aspect. And I felt like because the language was getting so muddy, famous actors maybe could be asked to tease out the difference between their real life celebrity presence with the work of acting and being present, being available, emotionally available to someone. They don't do that in this book. Confusion not only continues, it actually gets more. And then she talks about showing up physically and then in attentive ways and the importance of doing that. It really is all different ways of showing up. We go on to the elements of being present, warmth and competence, which build trust, revealing your true self. And although she doesn't mention her, it felt very much like the vulnerability work of Brene Brown. And that revealing this vulnerability lets other people feel free to trust and creates safety. Then she talks with Roger Fisher, I believe it is, or or maybe she just cites the book, Getting to Yes, a book I wholeheartedly recommend, and we'll talk about another time. He is one of the originators of the Harvard Negotiation Project. Harvard Negotiation style is very different from what we're used to thinking of with negotiation, win or lose or compromise. Those are all unacceptable in the Harvard system. The Harvard system, everyone should be putting in what they need for a win more, win more solution. And in fact, I'd really love to see a discussion of the merits of sociocracy and the Harvard system, because they seem very complimentary, sociocracy being what we're going to talk about later in the hour. He suggests avoid talking first, listen first, and you'll get more done and to look for open moments. And she goes on to this very neat story about a group of pastors who de-escalated Boston's gang problem. And one of the things they discovered, and this is one of those nuggets in the book that I think are great, Silence and acceptance of failure, but being fully present can radically turn around a tragic or super difficult situation. And I think that is a kind of little known and little understood and little practiced skill. So I love that. Then We go on to imposter syndrome, a solid concept for sure. Lots and lots and lots written about this. Originally thought to only affect women. Turns out it affects everybody to some degree and hooks into, and I've talked about this before, the Peter principle in employment where you are promoted 
beyond your skill set. And so you're always going, not only beyond your skill set, you're often promoted out of your skill set into a skill set you are not prepared for, leaving loads of people to feel like they shouldn't be where they are and that they'll be found out. And there's a lot of shame that that brings out in people. And it's debilitating. So at this point, but another interview with famous people, Neil Gaiman and Amanda Palmer. And while Gaiman seems genuinely humble, and I was kind of surprised at how much imposter syndrome he had experienced, given that he is kind of led a, a from an author point of view, kind of a charmed life. And I think that might be part of it, right? People feel like they don't deserve it. So he's very interesting insights on this. Palmer is a little dicier to me. She often has this public persona that is defensive. And that seems to argue very much against this idea of presence or being present. Like, I didn't really understand what she was doing here. She's really much of a performance artist. And in some ways, that is her life being known for being known. She's a musician, but her other stuff ends up sort of being known more. And Or maybe she just is being her true self out there. But Gaiman benefits from the fact that culturally we allow men to do things we disapprove of when women do them. But she is notorious for being pretty tone deaf. She has argued to want to use racial slurs with no consequences. She's also very wealthy and privileged, but has asked other people to work for free for her then writing about doing that, and then doing a TED Talk about doing that. And when she's been in controversy in the public eye, her response has been, it's always a misunderstanding. So it's, she always goes back to my intent. And I think as time goes on, we're looking at that kind of response with a little more jaded eye. I'd have to list a fair amount of negative values like defensiveness in what I know of Palmer as a celebrity, and it implies a certain kind of cluelessness, a disconnect in authenticity, or at least how to project authenticity, and which Cuddy kind of equates those two things. And honestly, I had questions about using these celebrity interviews in this book. I don't think they add much to it, really. It feels super inauthentic in itself, like the author is saying, hey, I know actors and writers and musicians and famous people. And hey, celebrities, they're just like us. I, anyway, flag number two. At this point, I remember that while TED Talks are a great concept in many ways, that organization itself and that endeavor itself suffers from celebrity and cultural negatives as well. Moving on, we talk some more about powerlessness and the lack of safety. And I love this phrase, powerlessness is at least as likely to corrupt as power. I have seen that over and over and over again, because we do things in a state of powerlessness that do not match our authentic and strong selves. We do them out of fear. We do them out of shame. We do them out of a memory. Let me say it this way. We don't do things in our best interests when we feel powerless. And we often carry that powerlessness away with us 
and do not see the massive real estate where we did have power. We really seriously, this, this has been studied. It's very interesting. We seriously underestimate our ability to influence others. We have it. We feel often that we don't because we're carrying this powerlessness. And I do think it corrupts. And I do think that's a beautiful, beautiful way to put it. So here was the first point at which I thought, okay, red flag. She goes on for a while about priming. Priming was one of the first dominoes to fall in social psychology in the replicability crisis. Nature uh, Magazine 2019 talks about that crisis and mentions (laughs) priming as one of the things. Shoddy science tiny sample sizes, and a tendency to find non-existent patterns in noisy data, because that's what humans do. But the shoddy studies that were then defended, shoddy studies that had made it all the way up into the top scientific journals, and what's happened in the last 10 years or so is social sciences trying to become more rigorous, as they should, have said, let's take those old studies and try to replicate them, try to repeat them. And they haven't been able to do it. If you can't do the same study and get the same or similar results, then the conclusion of the first study are bogus. That's the scientific method in a nutshell. And there's nothing wrong with it. We should always be correcting ourselves. The problem that was happening in the social sciences and in social psychology is that it was so across the board. There was no really good, apparently, standard for filtering out noise or setting up these studies or replicating them. And there was a lot of careers predicated on doing it poorly. It's notoriously hard to do hard science with the human psyche. We're monkeys. We're meat-based. We, it's problematic. The guy that popularized priming is a guy named Diedrich Staple from the Netherlands, and he was found to have faked his data for years. In subsequent studies, all they were able to find is that priming may have a tiny effect, but certainly not what Cuddy says it has in this book. Very modest, and that it varies tremendously between people And that research was available to her at the time of this book, but she didn't check it. She didn't use it. She didn't use these updates. And I find that interesting and I guess the right word is suspicious. Priming ushers in the second part of the book. And this is where it dawned on me what this book was going to actually be about. All the flags. So I didn't realize this was her. I I found this book as a recommendation and I grabbed it and I didn't research it before I read it. (laughs) Guess a little lesson for me. I didn't realize she was the power poses woman. So she did a incredibly popular viral TED talk in 2017 on power posing. And her claim was that a person can, by assuming two simple one-minute physical poses, embody power, and instantly become more powerful. Great. In the meantime, 
This has become a poster child for lousy science in the psychological and social sciences. It's the poster child for the replicability crisis. When I got hints in the first half that she was grabbing things that were sort of already had moved on and been discounted, I thought, okay, maybe the jury was still out in 2015 when this book was published. But no, in power posing, people had failed already by year three. She did the studies starting in 2010, 2012. By 2015, people were already saying, we can't replicate this. This doesn't work. And she still went on and wrote this book that came out in 2015. So she had ample time and certainly ample time to pause and say, there's still a jury that's out. So despite these terminal problems with the original study, she made this book and she has been doubling down on this concept ever since, even though one of her co-authors of the original study has now turned around and said the findings were not significant, it turns out, in any way, because that's how science works. And the other co-author of the original study has stayed completely silent on it. He's just moved on. I think it's a guy with his own work. No books, no TED Talks, no talk shows, no Oprah, because the whole thing really exploded into pop science hack. Now Cuddy says that all the further research has proved her theory because people feel more powerful when they adjust their posture to be expansive. But that's not very TED Talk worthy. And that was not the bigger part of her premise originally, which was that hormones detectably back up the feeling. There is no evidence for behavioral or psychological effects at all. People feel lots of things for lots of reasons. To say people feel more powerful when they stand like this is not a remarkable statement at all. Certainly not something to build an entire brand around. What we do with criticism indicates how willing to be present we are, while admitting that as a human, we can be super defensive. And if you write a book about presence, but then don't demonstrate it, maybe you should expect some of the fallout. And B, maybe you're not the right person for this topic. Because at this point, it feels like a willful denial in order to salvage your fame rather than an opportunity for honest growth and honest science. Now, she's a social psychologist, and where she worked for many years was Harvard Business School. And Ah, now the pieces start to kind of click in on this book. There is a very weird secondhand social psychological science industry thriving in the business world. Concepts that got popular in a celebrity way make it into books, TED Talks, Oprah, Forbes, whatever, and they end up here. Power posing, priming, and my all time favorite garbage, Myers Briggs hijacks business academics into cult-like devotion, and they then teach it and write about it and perpetuate it in organizations and in education and to these students who start businesses and work in these corporations, and it gets a life that lasts way, 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 way after it has been completely disproven and they have no way of correcting it. And when you point this out 
people will say, well, this very tiny thing about it still holds up. Posture makes you feel better. Or for priming, bias exists. Or for Myers-Briggs, people are different. Okay, so why does this happen? And I think it's a couple of things. Although social psychology seems to have a lot of methodology problems, as a field, it's first of all, it's trying to make psychology into quantifiable data. As a field, it's trying to improve, but those aren't the updates that come through business schools. And business as a concept, as a pursuit for all that they want to make big money for big risks. And they'll often say, that's why I'm making so much money is because I took the big risk. Business as a pursuit is breathtakingly risk averse underneath. People with money and power want to keep it and they want more of both. So they want a guarantee of things that cannot have guarantees like personality and easy fixes and relationships and trust. These are not easy to do or make. Humans are insanely messy. It's a fair point that Cuddy was intending with this book to empower women and underpowered groups with life hacks. But for a book whose first half is about authenticity and being present, and the second half is all about an already disproved thesis that she still stands behind, that's pretty contradictory. Her experience as a head trauma survivor and her subsequent struggles and successes, those are really moving and inspirational. So anytime you can find that stuff, that's very interesting. That does feel like she's an expert at it. And look, good people do bad science. The point of the philosophy of the pursuit of science is that we have to keep improving. You state a discovery, it's challenged, and you welcome that challenge. The original errors are part of what science does, but professionally, Cuddy is not interested in accepting or correcting these errors. Instead, she seems to want to make a lucrative career out of a disproved concept, and that feels like dishonesty or whatever the opposite of integrity is. And it is interesting to me that this book subject is such a mess. Being present has so many good things to recommend it for mental health, for relationship health. Whether or not it's retestable, whether or not it's a data-supported assertion, it still is a great concept. But being present and presence can be very different things. And Cuddy keeps using them interchangeably, and her editor allowed it. And that's puzzling to me. Add to that these chapters with invalidated concept after concept, as well as these celebrity interviews. Why are they there? And from an outside perspective, the whole thing is like a land of contradiction and a desire to be free of anonymity, right? I found something that made me famous and, and made me noticed and I have power. And whether it's power for talking to famous people or for writing a dubious life hack from a shaky study through popular media to the zombie life support system of a business school curriculum, it ends up being a book about presence, the charisma, which I would argue isn't really authentic, isn't really presence. In fact, the diametric opposite. Cuddy originally started the book with Alan Watts' description of being fully inhabiting the present moment. And I don't think this kind of charisma presence does that. Or maybe it does for the person, but it doesn't start that connection piece. And even 
footnote on that, Alan Watts himself is a walking contradiction. He was a hedonist, pretty nihilistic celebrity philosopher entertainer with self-control issues. And he was well aware that he was playing a role popularizing Buddhist and other concepts. I'm still conflicted about TED Talks. There's maybe it's the same as the rest of the book. There's lots to like and learn from and plenty also to roll your eyes at. There's a great TED Talk of a guy just doing the vocal inflections that indicate something's a TED Talk. It's hilarious. But what there isn't is a good way to follow up. I think they need an evolution so that if your first talk turned out to be wrong, you do another talk and they'll be stitched together so we all grow and learn and we get a better understanding of science. Ultimately, I don't really care about power posing. I would never have read the book if that's what it was. I was actually interested in the concept of presence, of being present, and even both concepts. I'd still like to read a good book on that concept of being present versus presence and how they're the same and how they're different. And if I can't find one, maybe I'll have to write it myself. And if I do, I promise after I've written it or while I'm writing it, if solid evidence comes up to disprove what I've written so far, I will try to be present enough to own up to it. Next up, Ted Rao, Sociocracy for All. Stay with us. We're about to talk to Ted Rao of sociocracyforall.com. take a place like a long time from like to get used to this it would seem to be so against what's known yeah it depends on where you're coming from for some organizations it's you tell them about it and they say duh you know like <laughs> how would you like yeah now you gave me the terms but all the rest i just go like yes i recognize as something that just makes absolute sense mm. uh for some people they've just been they've just been in hierarchical situations so often that they can't even imagine stepping out of it. And that's really hard. What we notice is that younger people have a much easier time. They are more in the camp of looking at it going like, uh, obviously, you know, <laughs> and then they just basically slip into it and they're good to go. And some people you have to almost, it, it feels really like retraining people's brains of, no, you can actually trust other people. No, you can actually ask for what you want. Right. No, you can actually say no when it's safe. You know, like all of those things because people don't have that experience. Many people do not know what it feels like to be in consent. Like what does it feel like in your body to be in consent? So many people have had that sense basically beaten out of them, you know, yeah, yeah. and they cannot find it back in themselves. And that gets really hard. Yeah. How interesting. All right. Well, let me ask you about what, I, so some people that I talk to have separate spheres that they are involved in their community. And some people, it is a full Venn diagram circle with what they do. Is this how you also, is this kind of community service for you as well? Or do you do other things? I guess I'm not quite understanding the question. So you mean outside of, let's see, outside of the community community? I guess it gets tricky. Outside community of your paid work. The place where I live and also the wider well, network. Well, that's true. Outside of your paid work, I guess, is the question. I just like outside. to find I just like to find out how people connect with their communities. Although, as I said, some people, it's the work they do anyway. It's like a perfect, right. you know. 
Yeah, and I guess I have a hard time even distinguishing. To <laughs> me, this is this is what I seem to be good at. This is something worthwhile doing, and I do it wherever I go. I mean, okay. you and I connected at a party, right? <laughs> Why am I talking about my work stuff doing doing a party? Well, because I think it's so so necessary, and you really notice how how you're giving a gift to people if you show them their different ways. Like just. Go to the internet and find out because you don't have to suffer in the way that you suffer. So to me, when I encountered sociocracy through through Jerry and this community, yeah. it felt a little bit like being exposed to somebody who knows how to cure cancer. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, I can't, or if you have, yeah, if you have the cure to cancer or the vaccine to something, right, you can't just sit on it and say, oh, that's sweet. You know, I'm going <laughs> to hold on to that. I'm like, no, you need to tell it to people. I, that's really how I feel about it because so many people tell me, why didn't anybody tell me that 30 years ago? I yeah. could have, I could have just, why did I suffer for so long? Well, and it, and it actually does, even as I asked the question, it was funny. I mean, for some people, you know, like, um, you know, I had a, an interviewee who was a nurse and then she also does some other stuff that's more what she does for community. But for the stuff that you do, it it is how to arrange a functioning like community outreach, right? It, or to do, what do they call that? Oh, community organizing. Like it, mm. it's such a much nicer way to do that than to use up volunteers and spit them out the other side. Yes. <laughs> It also becomes actually I have a little story for you that I that I like that explains also just how it can become and that sounds kind of trite and a little woo woo more than I would typically I guess want to sound. But it is really becoming a way of being. And I'll tell you one very specific story on that. So there's a there is a couple um like as in like a husband and wife that have been married for fifty years. Okay. And they encountered sociocracy together and really went all in on that and and um and they're actually volunteering for a nonprofit quite quite heavily. So they they told me that they are using some of the tools just between the two of them. For example, talked earlier about when there's a decision to be made, we make sure everybody understands the decision, everybody can react, and then there is the consent moment of where we say consent or no, no right. consent. And um, they were telling me a little story of how it just clarified their communication with each other. And here's a little story. I, I think I modified it, but it's a good sort of story to to show as an example. Mm. Let's say she says, hey, how about we go to this new exhibit on Saturday? And he says, well, what about our grocery run? Okay. The question is, did he ask a clarifying question? Like, was his question, oh, are we going before or after our going groceries? Uh, or is it a reaction? He'd say, oh, how about this? But I'm totally fine to go along with your plan. Or is it an objection? Says, no, we said we would go shopping. We can't also do that. But we'd never have the mental clarity or the clarity in our communication to really figure that out. So people get upset with each other for no reason because they didn't even have the words to describe what they were trying to do. Right. So in that way, it really becomes a mindset, right? Of like, no, be clear about what you want, how you ask for things. And then it becomes very related, for example, to nonviolent communication and how do you yeah. make a request? Like, how do you ask? And what are you doing? Why are you speaking? And and then, yeah, then it's really un, unseparable from anything you do, right? Yeah, and, and it even, 
I mean, I think of it for him asking for better and asking himself whether this is that kind of question. But for some reason, for me, it hits me as the listener being able to say, what are the three are you trying to ask me here before mm. getting mad? Like <laughs> I could spend some energy getting ticked off about this or I could find out whether you were, you just dropped off the actual communication part of that sentence. Right. Oh, how cool. Well, it's funny. Cause I just, um, I moved this uh, open window on my desktop so I could look at the image I have, which it strikes me that you're talking about. I have, um, this thing called, I don't know whether you pronounce it Ikigai or Ikigai, mm-hmm. yes, 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 which is that place where, you know, what you're good at, what you love, what the world needs and what can you can be paid for all overlap into what you should be doing, which is pretty much, I felt like you just did a perfect description of it. I do, yes. I'm, and I'm, I'm feeling incredibly fortunate about exactly that. Yes. Now, I often ask people about their creative life, whether they, you know, do it can be anything from painting one person did martial arts but even as i talk to you i think of how useful this is for organizing a creative life with other people mm. <laughs> um sort of meta meta creation but do you also is there anything that you do that is like super fun for you that is a creative pursuit yeah um I have spent a lot of time in my life writing songs and I'm not a good performer, but I love writing songs and recording them. So that's what I do when I have a lot of time on my hands mm. and I can really go into that bubble of um, not having to be a functional grown up for a while and just really diving deep into that. But of course now thanks to COVID and schools closed and so on, that's rare, right? Because the kids are at home so much and right. Yeah, but that is what I, that's what I would do if there was nothing else. (laughs) Oh, that's very cool. That's very cool. What do you wish you had known going into this? Like what, what, what are the challenges of going into this and what makes it easier now that you've been doing it for a while? Hmm. Well, I guess my biggest regrets are almost just on a plain business level now because we are a nonprofit, which means we have to figure those things out just just the um the mechanics of that i think Mm. i luckily i guess i'm learning more about what how do i say this what it is that helps people the most and that i'd really just had to figure out like what are the words what are the stories what are the little situations what are the exercises just Mm. refining that of how can i make it as easy as possible for people to have something that they can put their hat on. Because to me, it's really important that this, the whole sociocracy stuff, all of consent-based things, that they're not just in your brain as nice intentions, but that you can actually have the opportunity to really live it, right? Right. It has to be practiced. It has to be out in the world and done. Otherwise, it doesn't change anything. So I feel very passionate about just the convenience and practicability of doing it for real. Right. And that needed to be figured out over time. And I notice now that more and more people are working with us that haven't been around for so long that they are still finding their way there. But it's obvious for me now. Like, no, just do it this way, you know. Right. <laughs> but I guess everybody has to has to find their own way. And I also am grateful that they might have a different angle on things that I might have missed. So it might actually come out pretty well in the end. Is this something that could be I mean, 
Is this something that could be you? You mentioned before the the kids being home because of COVID and, and school and stuff. Is this something that a, do any schools run like this? Yeah, actually, that's that's something that I'm actually <laughs> reporting with a little bit of sadness because sometimes I ask myself, hold on, why are my kids going to a public school? Nothing against the public school again. It's great. Yeah, but it is not a consent-run school. It you is know, not. It is not like, so. You know, and sometimes I ask myself, like, hold on, why am I doing this for literally other, like, why do I literally consult and coach other schools so mm-hmm. they can have a better environment by I send my kids away so I can do that kind of work? It doesn't seem to <laughs> always line up. All, I don't know. But yes, there are schools. And actually, what's, what's quite sweet, I find, also going back to what we talked about earlier, is that the person who came up with sociocracy, the way we're using it now, basically, who, who plucked the pieces together mm. here at Edinburgh in the Netherlands, he as a kid in the Netherlands went to a Quaker school. So that's where the whole oh. like spirit of the meeting kind of, that's that connection of, that's why for Quakers, they also look at sociocracy. Either they go like, oh, that can't be real because it's not consensus. Or they go, oh, I recognize that. Like they oh. recognize the essence of it. Yeah. That shows you, first of all, where that, that, that is part of the history, just like the, a consent-run school. And right. the other piece is it shows you that in, in my judgment, but that's totally just me making things up and probably <laughs> projecting more than anything else. But for Jared Entenberg to be able to make this jump of having the audacity to implement this kind of stuff into his business, mm. maybe you could have only done that if you were as, as a young child immersed in this kind of mindset right only then you would even even have yeah that's that's at least what i'm what i'm guessing yeah. so i don't think it's a coincidence that he encountered it as a kid you know mm. anyway but yeah consent on schools there are schools there are schools in the u.s that uses there are schools in the netherlands there's actually for those who are interested in that you can probably find it there is a little documentary that's called school circles Hmm. by a group called Wandering School. Just that, Googling that, should, one should find it. And it's yeah, a documentary about schools in the Netherlands. I think all of them are in the Netherlands. Uh, just showing how they do consent with kids and, you know, a, a like, I don't know, maybe 13-year-old explaining consent like it's the most normal thing on earth. It's just really, really heartwarming uh, to see these kids just, yeah, doing it like, like it's normal as it could be. Yeah, know? yeah. And... It strikes me that it's a little bit more like most people's university experience, which I, I don't know about you, but I found so liberating, which was if I, I mean, there, there were some things that I was told that I had to, you know, do and take, but the other stuff, if I decided this track wasn't for me, I switched to a different track and I had a lot of agency, which I had not had from K to 12. Um, it's funny that you're using the word agency, by the way, because that's one of my favorite words in this agency, okay. and not, not many people use the word agency. <laughs> it's such a liberating word, and it yeah. and it's such a diagnostic for me of so many. The majority of the jobs I've had involved steadily decreasing agency, which meant that I was looking for another job fairly. Like it was, <laughs> I wasn't actively undermining where I worked, but I certainly wasn't engaged. And I certainly was constantly checking for other jobs up until the one I clients I have now, but, and doing a lot of work on my own. But before this, oh my goodness, I had this long string of places that were 
they just, you know, it's really interesting to talk about this now in a time where we talk about things like voting blocks that are almost even and then that consent versus consensus. But also when we're coming to look at white supremacy and the legacy of slavery in that same kind of like if you work at places that believe that the boss is there to make you do the work, you're lucky to have a job. If you object or or anything, then hit the road. They're very it's a fairly brutal I had a lot of energy and stuff to contribute, but if I couldn't contribute, then why should I work there? <laughs> like why should I be interested in anything that we're doing? <laughs> Yeah, and in that context, maybe I was, you know, going back to your earlier question about what's the benefit to an organization, right? Of like mm. just imagining if you unleashed basically the agency of every person, right. or at least, you know, at least the 80% that were disengaged. <laughs> you know, if you can just shift everybody into that, can you just imagine how much energy there is? It's amazing. It's amazing to even think about. And I imagine if, um, if human resources were based on this instead, where you protect the organization by keeping it sustainable instead of keeping the power structures like in stasis. And I'm just thinking about those places you were talking earlier about the circles and the decision-making. And I immediately was remembering all these, uh, all the studies about the space shuttle challenger and how the people that were putting it together said there's a weak spot here and they were constantly overruled and a ton of people died and it ruined mm-hmm. it ruined space for like two generations no you know it ruined nasa and i'm thinking see that's a liability what if hr had said oh they are empowered to shut down this line they are they they have a big stake in this oh man what a different what a different outcome <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, that's also a very nice example that I would use in teaching. You know, because often people walk around thinking objections are a bad thing, mm. right? Objections are a bad thing, right? That's that's obvious to people that that would be the case. And you're like, yeah, but if you turn it around, like if we're all in the camp of whatever, for example, making this mission, you know, the space mission or you name it, whatever it is, the school that we run, this community, whatever it might be. Right. If we're all in the camp of wanting to make this as good as possible, if somebody has an objection because they're saying, hold on, there is an issue here and we, that's a problem. We're going to have a problem. I object. How crazy and stupid would we have to be to not want to listen if somebody tells us yeah. that yeah. it happens again so i always tell people like no there is not the people who want the plan and the objectors on on opposite sides they're all in the same camp they're all in the camp of wanting to get the best outcome it's just that they happen to see something that other people are not seeing so they are bringing something please listen yeah yeah something really really valuable that's so great. I was just uh, reading recently. I did another episode where I talked about this, but have you ever heard of Conway's Law? Just bring it yeah. up really quickly. Conway's yeah. Law says that the, it was a Microsoft guy, that the product that you create, the software product you create is a reflection of the quality of communication in the organization. So the physical thing you hold in your hands or in the case of software you experience or the service is a miniature 
of how good the communication is. So if it's a good product, it's good communication. And if it's a terrible product, it shows you that there was no communication. And it, it's kind of a one for one. Like it feels so simplistic and unlikely, but when you think it out, you go, well, yeah. Mm. <laughs> I can see that. Now, of course, I'm immediately thinking about it, you know, all the things that are wrong within our own organization. <laughs> like, uh -huh, yeah, I can see that. You know. Well, and, and that, and that the better you improve these, this, because it's, it's sociocracy mandates this kind of, conversation this kind of communication and the better that gets the better the the better the the thing that you're holding comes out it's just uh there's somebody did a great illustration that i love if you look it up conway's law you'll find it under images and it is all the teams at microsoft and instead of the connection lines between those circles they're holding little guns at all the other groups <laughs> Trying, all the teams are trying to kill each other. <laughs> well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is very cool. Wow. So what are you what are you doing going forward? What what do you see as sort of the the next step for your organization and the next step for what you want to do? Well, we have big plans. We actually just went so we've been I never quite know. I think it's four years that we've been into this in this constellation. And first it was just my um, partner and me, and then people wanted to join, right? Because they were excited about it. So then we grew and we now have 170 people that are volunteer members and like 10 or 12 changes all the time, mm -hmm. uh, people in paid positions. And uh, it's now our latest budget was for the first time that we were like, okay, we really now have a lot of resources to really make things happen. So we're all very excited about 2021 because we, we have this feeling of, well, we have it down now. We now understand what we're doing and how we're doing it and who we're doing it with. So nice. this year is going to be amazing. So I'm excited about it. I, yeah, there's something that I'm, that I'm working on that is just about teaching people how to start a group actually wrote a little thing that I'm going to be publishing this year. Just starting groups is already so hard. So making that a little easier for people. Mm. So we have, um, yeah, and just overall our mission is to make this accessible to anybody who wants it mm. without, without putting any limitations on it. You know, for example, making it affordable, translating it into other languages. Mm. So now all the you know, many things that we have are translated into 10 languages right now because we have volunteers who are excited about it. So there's just all the all the energy that we talked about earlier, yeah. we're feeling it right now of people just going like, yes, I want to contribute. And now we have all the places where people can contribute. And now there's really nothing that can stop us. It's really a fun place to be right now. Mm. Are, are any towns run like this? Towns, huh? Towns is an interesting thing. There are, so first answers, no. There are two things to say about that. One is that, that sociocracy really is made for organizations, right? An organization mm -hmm. is a little bit different from a town because in an organization, you have, let's say, 80 people that are working together on this thing, right? Right, right. While in a town, you have, let's say, I don't know, 200 people that are running the town and 80,000 that live there. That's yeah. a little, that's a different situation. Yet there is a project that is actually several projects that are absolutely amazing in that, in that, um, on that topic. And those are the, called the neighborhood parliaments in India. Mm. And what they do is they take 30 people by neighborhood and then put them in like organize them into a circle 
And then let's say you always have one or two people from each of each of those. And then you go to the next level, like let's say one whole part of town, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have a town wide, district wide, and so on. And they go up to the national level and they have a hundred and like hundreds of thousands of people organized that way. And right now, the the magic of it is really just people talking to each other, which in a in a small groups kind of setting which is already so much potential because that way people go into that sense of agency of, hey, mm. you know, us, we could change something, actually. Mm. They also do it with just with children's. There's the version of the children's parliaments in, in India. And right now there are many people trained, not so much in this country, but more like in uh, South America and in Africa. So the people who are training people in India on how to run this are now training people in other countries. And that's when it gets really exciting, right? But the um, the whole point of, I guess, of government and that is that I know in those areas where those children's and neighborhood parliaments are very strong, yeah. they are now in somewhat of a competition kind of place compared to the formal government, because the formal government now gets into trouble, right, if they do things where the um, neighborhood parliament is clearly uh, has a different view. Mm. So I was talking to somebody there and they were telling me, that just because they have the trust and the and the connection to the actual people, they now what people say is if you want the former government to do something, go through the neighborhood parliaments because then you will be heard. Mm. So that that kind of stuff excites me a lot. I yeah. have to, you know, like oh, now we're talking. Now we're talking. Maybe there's a way to change things from the inside and out, or just at least enhance very significantly, so that there is an avenue for people to hear each other and then be heard on the, on that higher level. Well, that piece, exactly. The idea that the prevailing business paradigm is appropriate in other domains, I find immediately suspicious, right? So people that run a business, that's not what running government is. That's not governance. There's no business. Somebody saying, Oh, well, it's a good businessman. No, it's a completely different thing. It might be good at both, but that doesn't necessarily mean it. So the idea that you could have this other version of stuff and that let governance go on at the things governance should be good at, but it's not necessarily good at this, micro level that's very interesting hmm that's really interesting i think about that a lot of times it's, it's almost reverse engineering for this thing i often think about with the catholic system that happened during the 1900s in this country where by being sort of underserved by the public schools and these other institutions you know people like my grandparents were putting aside a couple dollars every week so that they could be part of this system that was just a completely alternative system to the schools, the funeral homes, everything, cradle to grave. <laughs> and I often think there's problems with that, but wow, that was an interesting use of energy. And it reminds me of what you're talking about without a religious basis, which is going to make stuff, you know, even freer and even more agency. Huh. Just one little point to that, because it's so interesting that you make that connection, because the neighborhood parliaments and the children's parliaments were actually started by a Catholic priest, who then, you know, so there must be a relationship to just this way of organizing. Yeah. You also looked at how Gandhi organized, you know, like, what was the whole point, for example? Anyway, so, huh. and then, and that I find really admirable, 
he decided that in order to make it inclusive, he wanted to make it secular. Oh, that's good. And that's really good like, in India. Wow, you have my attention here now. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, I am impressed. I Yes. And oh, yeah, that so was a logical implication for him. It had to be secular if it needed to be inclusive to me. Wow. Huh. Well, that's going to be something I look up after after talking mm-hmm. to you. Well, this has been great. It's really been enlightening. And, and like I said, I might contact you another time just to talk about sociocracy. It's so interesting. What are some things, if people want to find out more about this, where, where are some good places to go? There's sociocracyforall.org. That's your website. Um, is that the place to start? Or should, there, should they be reading about other stuff or YouTube? Uh, yeah, we have lots of stuff on YouTube. Yeah, the website is a good starting point because, of course, we're trying to organize things in a way so they can they can be found easily. So that will be there. For example, if I guess yeah, if people have listened to this, they might still enjoy the um, sociocracyfall.org slash start here. Mm. So start just because that's basically like all the things that make sense to to watch and see first, because we're also doing webinars and so on for people who are a little bit deeper uh, into things. Mm-hmm. Lots of articles. I enjoy writing, so I'm I'm writing a lot. And yeah, we have a little bit of a history of webinars, webinar recordings, and just videos, animated stuff. Great. Just to make it accessible. That's the whole point. Do you have a book? We do have a book. Thank you. Very nice. I am, <laughs> we do have a book, and it is called Many Voices, One Song. So if oh, one, like that. one looks for Many Voices, One Song and Sociocracy, um, it's findable. And that's, of course, also a sweet image, right? Yeah. Because that's that's what the one song or the mission that binds us together, the purpose in purpose-driven organization is what, what sets the tone. But there are many voices that can be heard on it. Yeah, yeah. And any any organization can be purpose driven if if they're brave enough. <laughs> right, <laughs> willing to realign whatever they are doing with what actually really inspires them. Yeah, and the people involved. Well, thanks, Ted. This has been a terrific talk. Thank you, Chad. I'd like to thank Ted Rao for talking with us. You can find more about his work at sociocracyforall.com. You can find previous episodes and information at our website, working9to-thrive.com with the number nine.